Yo, January 11th. January, by the way, for you commodities fans out there, it's the letter F. We're going to talk to Brian Kelly. F is for fabulous. He is. He's joining us, by the way, Dan Nathan. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by Dan Nathan. You're watching Market Call Macro, where we break down the biggest headlines of the day through the lens of the futures market, which is why I was mentioning that January is letter F. When we get to February, I will tell you it's the letter G, but that's neither here nor there. Today, we're looking at the stock market volatility, and there's volatility, folks. Jamie Dimon's comments on the economy and the Jay Powell hearing. You know my thoughts on Jay Powell. Plus, as I mentioned, we got Brian Kelly coming in, BK founder and CEO of BKCM LLC. Today's market call is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And Open Exchange, Brian, I know you're listening in a waiting room because they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Dan Nathan, how are you today? <laughs> I'm doing well. You're all fired up. Oh, I am. You I'm get... geeked up, man. This, I'm this, so geeked up. This is Powell Palooza Day today. He's sitting in front of the Senate here telling a lot of senators what they probably want to hear in an effort to get his nomination for his second term as the Fed chair. You know, confirmed here. I mean, listen, you know, I don't know. But, you know, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, guy. You know, like the whole idea that he could get more hawkish than he already has than than some of his ed, other Fed colleagues, right? That's caused a bit of volatility in the stock market. What's more important to you? The fact that they are perceived to be battling inflation full on or that battling of the inflation could cause risk assets to come in. From a political standpoint, there are implications. No question about it, I think. But politically, and again, this is through now the political lens, yeah. I think the biggest thing they're concerned about right now is not the market. I mean, the market's still within earshot of an all-time high. That's back burner stuff. For these folks on Capitol Hill, the number one thing that's either going to get them reelected or get them bounced out of office is inflation and who's creating inflation. And oh, by the way, what are we doing to try to mitigate inflation, Chair Powell? So I think that's why I've thought all along he could actually be more hawkish during this confirmation hearing than dovish, Dan Nathan. Well, yeah, and you said that yesterday in the market call when we were speaking at 11 o'clock. And at the time, you know, the market, the stock market, if we just look at the S&P futures, they just fell off a cliff, you know, at some point overnight um, into Monday morning. And when we were speaking, I think the S&P was down about 2% or a little more, and the NASDAQ futures were down a little more than 3%. It felt really bad, you know, and here we are a day later and we see, you know, well, you see coming off some of those recovery highs, but that was a vicious intraday V reversal. And I think it comes to what you're saying is that, you know, a lot of those expectations about battling inflation are kind of baked in and maybe some of the worst headlines are behind us. Some of these counter trend rallies, you know, that we see. And again, I don't know what we're in the midst of or what we're on the verge of. But, you know, you see moves like that when the market is starting to make a top and is starting to roll over. You see some vicious violent rallies and we saw it yesterday in spam i mean just look at what the nasdaq thing i did and nasdaq was down over 400 points yesterday at its trough and it closed unchanged to slightly higher and s p's went from down 100 basically at one point to i think unchanged or thereabouts i mean that's a pretty fabulous move so we'll see if that continues jp morgan's marco Kalanovic, who is wonderful by the way I w i'd like to think that cnbc's fast money sort of put him on the map but he said, now it's time to buy the dip in stocks. Now, I know what a lot of folks are saying themselves right now. That's what he says all the time. And you know what? You're correct. The problem is 
that adage and that philosophy has been correct. We'll see if it continues to be. That's the key. Are we in a different paradigm right now, Dan Nathan? Yeah, so let's look at a one-year chart of the S&P futures. If we look at the volatility that we had in December, that largely had to do with inflation fears, what the Fed might do, and obviously Omicron, and what the effects of this new COVID variant is going to have on economic growth in general. And if you look at those two moves, it made a series, a series of higher lows there. And if you look at that first one from early December, it's about 44.90 in the futures, about 44.20 in the second one. And we obviously bottomed yesterday above those levels here. What is your take, Guy? Because if we take out yesterday's lows, those prior two lows from December are clearly in the sights there. Then you have that uptrend there and the 200-day moving average all the way down there at 4,400. You get down there from 4,800 to 4,400, you could do the math. That would probably be the largest peak to trough decline we've had in the S&P futures in a year. 4530 is the level that you're talking about in terms of that sort of, you know, that December low, which lines up, which, by the way, lined up with the late August, early September prior all time high, which is why we pointed out, by the way, that low was put in on December 20th. And if you recall, you had a vicious reversal during that week as well. So we'll see if this is the same thing in terms of charts. Carter Braxton Worth, who does our piece with us on Mondays. I mean, he looks at this and this is textbook, lower left, upper right, series of higher highs, higher lows. Everything looks great until it doesn't. Now, are we on the precipice of that? Again, I don't know, but that 200-day moving average, which now comes in around 4,400 or so, we haven't come near it now, literally in a year and a half, two years, Dan Nathan. Yeah, but you know what has? If we look at the NASDAQ 100 futures guy, we almost got to that 200-day moving average there yesterday. It pierced for a second, for a second, that uptrend that's been in place since early March. You know, that one feels a little a little bit more vulnerable to me. You know, when you think about some of the just absolute destruction that we've seen in a lot of high growth, high valuation tech names as interest rates have moved higher. And now all of a sudden, this is kind of new part of the story here in 2022. And granted, we are only 11 days into it, but we've seen some of the mega caps, the big ones, you know, Microsoft at its lows yesterday was down about 9% on the year, guy. That's the biggest peak to trough decline that stock has seen in well over a year. What's your take on the NASDAQ here? Are we going to see a bit more pain? And what happens to a lot of risk models when the NASDAQ 100 is below the 200-day moving average, someplace get, it has not been in a year and a half? It's going to get dicey very quickly. And look, I mean, we can come back in a month from now and say, boy, that was a textbook island reversal, whatever you want to call it. We touched down to the 200-day moving average effectively. We held this trend line. Anything you want to look at, in retrospect, that could be the case. I'll go out on a limb and say this. Yes, we obviously bounce, but I don't think this is over by any of the stretch of the imagination because I do think so many of these names are tethered to, whether justified or not, where yields are going. And, you know, we're going to talk about yields with BK. I still think yields are going higher. So in my world, by definition, although we did have a meaningful bounce yesterday, I think this bounce is going to be short-lived. Well, yeah. And so then it really comes down to what are those rate hike expectations? We know that the CEO of JP Morgan, which I thought was kind of interesting, guy, they're reporting earnings in a couple of days or so. Jamie Dimon doing an interview on CNBC. And if you just look at a couple of the headlines here, he just doesn't seem too bothered about the idea that we're going to have four or the possibility of four rate hikes this year, talking about just a rip roaring economy, consumer balance sheets in a great spot. You know, I can't imagine that he's going to have that sort of dialogue 
dialogue before his earnings and then have a kind of slightly different view, or at least the numbers are going to show something different. What was your take on that? Because I think it's just, you know, I, I think when you have the, the CEO of the largest bank in the planet kind of giving those sorts of signals, you got to pay attention. I think, you know, it's interesting. You know, I took those comments as well, and I'm trying to figure out like what his game is. And maybe this is sort of the Jamie Dimon in transition, Jamie Dimon, going from obviously running the most important bank on the planet to his next chapter in life. I don't know what that is, but some of those comments are really interesting. Again, four rate hikes seems to be somewhat unconcerned about it. And you would think that if he were just through the lens of being the CEO of JP Morgan, what this could possibly mean to the stock market and subsequently a stock. But I think he's looking at it through a much different lens, as it will. So we'll see. I will say this. I happen to agree with him. My sense is we will see the economic growth this decade. I think it's going to be a little dicey this year, but I think it's going to pick up meaningfully. And again, I do think the Fed is going to move and move in a, in a very precipitous fashion. And it's long overdue. And if the market has a conniption on the back of it, so be it. This sort of mirrors some of the comments that James Gorman made a couple months ago in his interview with Wilfred Frost on CNBC. Yeah. So if you look at that CME Fed Watch, it's their tracker of uh, expectations for interest rate hikes. You look at that March and you look at nearly 72% of the likelihood of a 25 basis point hike. Guy, do you remember the last time Fed Chair Powell was raising interest rates? I just, in my mind, you know, it, it goes back to the last period of volatility that we really saw in the markets. This is, you know, X pandemic here, but this is a great little tracker here to give you a sense of what the futures markets are pricing for hikes. And I think it's really important to also remember is that Goldman, when they came out and said the likelihood of four hikes, and they were one of the first to do it in a meaningful manner, that's something that really got that market going in the overnight session, Sunday night into Monday morning. No question. And look, I mean, we've talked about 10-year yields but it's important, and Danny Moses, our partner on the tape, brings this up all the time. Maybe all along we should be looking at two-year yields. I mentioned that because we have a 10-year yield chart up here, and I still think we're going to 2%. I've said that for a while. But two-year yields have gone from 20 basis points doing nothing in the fall, approaching 1% now in the beginning of January. That is a historic move by any stretch. Now, we're looking at this 10-year chart. Again, as we sit here, I think it traded a little bit north of 1.8% yesterday. The high we've effectively seen since March, as you know. I think this is very constructive in terms of where I think yields are going, because I think yields are going higher, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, you do. All right, let's see where Brian Kelly of BK. No, yeah. wait, let's see, BK let's see. is, oh, come on. Let's see where he thinks yields are going, because to me, you know that I think that resistance level is going to be really hard to be pierced, that 2% level. Maybe it gets into that danger zone, as you were calling it yesterday, but to me, it's still below the hard deck. BK, welcome to Market Call Macro, my man. Loving it. Thanks for having me. Love this show. <laughs> love the artwork behind you, BK. You listen, don't listen. You like that? Don't don't say you love the show. I can tell when you're being sincere and I can tell when you're being disingenuous. That's okay. I, I, I dig you. No. You guys are actually really fired up today. And I like I like hearing a lot more. I mean, I get to hear what you guys think behind the scenes on Fast Money. We don't always have enough time to say it, but I, I like the long form and get to hear a little further on what you're talking about rather than just the soundbite. So I've actually enjoyed the last few minutes listening to you guys. 
All right. Well, fair enough, big man. Like, take a look here. We have a multi-year chart of the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield. I drew some good lines. You know I've learned them all from our friend Carter Braxton Worth. You see that uptrend, and it's tested that uptrend in a numerous times over the last, let's say, nine months or so. BK, you see that overhead resistance. From purely a technical standpoint, what's your take? And then we'd love to hear your thoughts on the two-year yield versus the 10-year and what they're kind of saying to you right now. Yeah, no, I think, listen, this this is the heart of the, the issue with the markets right now. And so if I just simply look at that chart and I and I didn't know what that chart was, I'd say we're at like 178, 179. That looks like a good enough place for it to pause in the short term. And it would be really difficult for it to get through too. So that kind of gives you a sense of technically what you think is going on, what I think is going on with yields. That being said, the way the kind of the framework I'm using to look at this market is, we're, you know, it is Fed driven. And there's kind of, and it's going to oscillate here. So we're going to oscillate between these inflation fears, and then the Fed's going to come out and get really hawkish. And then the only option they have is to induce a recession, and then we'll go into the recession fears. And that, to me, is what we've seen over the last couple of months in the markets, where you had this oscillation. And you you make slightly higher highs, and, and the lower lows are a little bit higher. But if you think about it, there is a limit on this economy. And so it is going to be a bit tough sledding because as the economy grows, the Fed is going to be worried about inflation more than actual economic growth. And so they are going to put a cap on it. And then we'll get these fears of recession. So to me, yeah, could it go to 2%? Absolutely. But I think, you know, even that it's at 1.78 and we have the best economy in decades, according to Jamie Dimon, that seems really low for the best economy in decades, which is telling me the market thinks that you know, the 10-year rate is generally the, the rate that corresponds with the economy. The GDP tells me we're going to get a 2% GDP growth. Okay, that's not great. It's interesting, BK. Do you think they're justified? Look, I, again, you, I think you know my stance on the Fed. I'm not a fan, but it doesn't matter what I think. Do you think they're now finally, inflation is a concern. They flat out said, no longer going to use the term transitory. We're retiring it. It's amazing how quickly inflation has gone from something they were looking for and wanting to something is now concerning seemingly all the members of the Federal Reserve. It's and it's amazing how wrong they were about transitory and how much the mark, how much credit the market's giving them now that they think that it's not transitory. So to me, I would guess they're wrong, right? I mean, if you look at what caused this inflation, we had supply chain backups, we had money being put into people's bank accounts, literally payments to people's bank accounts, that kept the economy buoyant. It got us out of what effectively was a depression during the pandemic, but it also caused this inflationary pressure. Now what's happening? I've got rates that are higher. I don't really have any more transfer payments from the government. I've got a Federal Reserve that is cutting back quantitative easing, cutting back liquidity into the market. I've got China, whose economy is effectively imploded, might be inflecting on the bottom. But all the things that caused this inflation are now abating. So I think that the Fed's going to be wrong about it being permanent. It's going to be transitory now. And the Fed is going to raise rates at the exact wrong time. They should have raised rates a long time ago. They didn't. Now here they are. They're caught. They're going to raise rates at the wrong time. You talk about the dollar all the time, BK. And we have a DXY chart, which I think we should take a look at because now, you've said it, a, a, a rising dollar is a wrecking ball for equity markets, and we have a rising dollar, and probably justifiably so, given some of the rhetoric, not only rhetoric we've heard from the Fed, but actions of the Federal Reserve. What's your take here on the Dixie? 
Yeah, so that's that's why you got to watch that two-year rate because the two-year rate is what most foreign currency prices off of, whether it's two-year rate here in the US or Great Britain, Australia. And so you get a higher two-year rate, you're going to get a higher dollar. Why does that matter to the world? Because 70% of the invoices in the world are priced in dollars. We also have a record amount of dollar-denominated debt. So as that dollar rises, it actually costs more to service that debt. People then have to buy more dollars uh, to service that debt, or there's, there's a cost to it. So as the dollar goes up, it actually slows the economy. And so that's why I say the dollar is the new VIX, and it's a wrecking ball for the global economy, because as you go, as you go away from the center of the U.S., you get more and more risk and more and more instability. And if those dollars aren't there, then those countries that have borrowed in dollars or those corporations that have borrowed in dollars, it's almost as if it's a short squeeze and they have to take other resources to put into those dollars. So that then slows the global economy. So that's why you got to watch the two-year, right? If you see the two-year going up and then you're going to see the dollar rising after follow that or being correlated with that, you can then start to think, hey, wait a second, emerging markets are going to slow here. And we've seen that. Look at EEM. That's just gotten crushed over the last year. So, Beeks, as we're speaking, the two-year Treasury yield is above 90 basis points, the highest it's been in over a year here. Why is it that the Dixie, the U.S. dollar, has just gone sideways as, you know, as the two-year has been rallying, as expectations for inflation have been rising over that period? Is it that the dollar kind of ran ahead of it a little bit? And then we just got to talk about, you know, your old friend gold a little bit, because to me, just like the Dixie right here, it's telling a little bit of a different story about inflation expectations, at least in my opinion. Yeah, so that's it's, it's interesting. So remember that all foreign currencies are relative value. So when we talk about the dollar, we, there's another side to that trade. So we got to say, what am I buying the dollar with? And so you talk about, I'm buying it with euros or I'm buying it with pounds. And so that's the other side of that trade. So then you have to look at the monetary policy in those countries. So uh, when we talk about the Dixie index, it's about 60% euro. I think it's 10 or 15% British pound and then US dollar and then Japanese yen, right? So you got to look at those three economies. So what is happening in Europe? They've got an inflation problem. They are likely going to have to raise rates, maybe even faster than the Fed. So the market's starting to price in, in, in that. That gives a little bit of a bid to the euro, takes a little bit of the fluff out of the dollar. We look at Great Britain. They've already raised rates, said they will likely do more. Japanese yen, well, we don't have to worry about the yen. That's not even a real currency anymore. So that's what you got to think about when you think about dollar. It's not just the Dixie in a vacuum. There is another side to that trade. And so that's why you, you kind of just see it kind of floundering around now. But when you see that, just as a pure trader, when you see that compression of volatility, you, you know, you want to be looking for some kind of explosive move. I'm not saying it goes up or down, but I'm saying whatever that next move is going to be, it'll likely be explosive in currencies. Yeah, and I think it's to be equally explosive in the gold market. I mean, we have this little pennant formation in the gold chart. Um, you know, we're coming to this. We've been in sideways action. The ranges get more and more narrow. It's just a matter of time before it gives one way or another. And I think to BK's point, I don't know which way it is. I think I do. I think it's to the upside, but I guess to your earlier point, let the market decide, because if we get a meaningful break above sort of that 1900 level or so, which I know is $100 away, I wouldn't be fading this, but that's just me, BK. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? Think about everything we just talked about. We talked about the potential for at least a pause in rates, and let's say it's a pause in two-year rates. If they start to dip down, then you would think, hey, wait a second, maybe the dollar is going to dip down. 
If the dollar is weaker, that generally means gold's going to be stronger. So it sets up really interestingly here. And, you know, I mean, we all look at these markets as a, as a risk reward type of thing. So what's your what's your risk here on gold? I mean, you're talking uh, maybe maybe 50 to 100 bucks on this on the CME futures contract versus an upside. If it breaks out of that pennant, probably over 2000. So it's a great risk reward trade at this point in time. I like so, what you did there, BK. I like what you did there. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, so I was just going to say, Beeks, you were also very for, uh, focused on uh, crude oil here. And Guy has had a really great call directionally, despite the fact there's been a lot of volatility in the underlying. And it's been probably a trader's kind of dream here. We didn't even draw any lines on this chart of the futures contract. We just left the two-year there. And you see the series of kind of, it did, it actually, it was a really nice double bottom if you look at that early December bottom here. And I guess my question to you, is that, you know, if the government, if the U.S. government and a few other governments had not tapped their strategic reserves and then we didn't have Omicron, would we be faced right now with $100 a barrel crude oil? Because I know that there's a lot of people, including Guy, who think that's where we're going. You know, pretty constructive looking chart here. But I guess this comes back into what we were talking about with the dollar, if it were to continue to go higher and then growth expectations don't materialize. Might we see the highs in crude here? Well, so one, first of all, I'm long of I'm long of crude oil futures, so you know you know where my view is. But here's why: look at that big drop that we had back in I guess it was uh, the end of November, early December, right? That was because of Omicron. That was because the economy is going to slow, and you can really think of crude oil as just a global economic index. I mean, the economy is energy; energy is the economy. They go hand in hand. So now, what was I saying earlier? We've got this kind of oscillation between inflation scares and slowing of the economy and recession. Well, we've had the recession dip. That's what happened in November and December. Now we're starting to see that the oil may be even leading kind of that economic growth. And at the same time, we don't have any incentive for our oil companies to drill more. So it's going to be supply constrained. And if you get any uptick in economic activity, uh, then you should have higher oil prices. So yeah, I think I think hundred. I think I, I agree with Guy that a hundred dollar a barrel oil is probably a, a good target. And absent Omicron, I think you know we would be much higher. The SPR release didn't matter. In fact, I bought the dip on the SPR relief. That was the dumbest move they could ever make. I appreciate that comment because I said that at the time. I think a lot of people agree. I thought it was a panic move. They fired a bullet they didn't need to fire. But again, that's neither here nor there. I'll say this, I'm with you. And by the way, throwing geopolitical risk, post-Olympics, what could potentially happen between China and Taiwan, situation between Russia and Ukraine, put all those together, I think you got $100 crude. Now, you and I were sort of raised in the commodities world, which I totally dig as well. And there's something that a lot of the old timers used to call Dr. Copper, which makes me sort of wince. And now I see these Jerry Rice Brett Favre commercials wearing copper all over the place. But yeah. copper is the other one of these things that sort of speaks to global economic growth or lack thereof. Yeah, exactly. And I share your view on those those copper ads. I mean, those guys are more padded up and taped up than they've ever been. And they're playing a game of touch football. They should probably not be playing anything. Limber up a bit. But anyway, let's go to copper. What's it telling us? Well, it's, it's going nowhere, which is telling you the economy's going nowhere. So again, I think there's probably, you, you've got to look at copper and say, yeah, it's an indicator of economic activity. That's one thing, that's your demand side, but the supply side is also constrained. So we talk about geopolitical concerns. You know, look at Chile, right? Chile is the largest copper producer out there. They're definitely having some political issues there. 
you know, they just elected a, a leader that said they're not, you know, they're going to change the way that mines in that country work. And so it's going to be more expensive to get copper out of the ground. That be, so if you have a more expensive cost going in and you have tepid demand, but supplies declining, you would think on balance that maybe this thing breaks higher. And that's kind of the view that I'm, I'm betting. And it may have nothing to do with the economy anymore. The economy is, you know, flat. That's what copper's told you for the last six months. But you may, again, have this supply constraint and any little bit of excess demand will push the price higher. All right, BK, fair enough on, on the traditional risk assets here. Let's focus on- Legacy not- markets is what we call them in the crypto world. That's it. All right, there you go. All right, you are our Bitcoin baller, as you were referred to on CNBC's Fast Money. You wrote the book on it literally back in 2014 called The Bitcoin Big Bang. I know everything, which is not a whole heck of a lot, about crypto because of you here, man. Let's talk about what's going on right now. You know, Bitcoin, which is the big daddy, obviously made a new all-time high in early November or so, near 69,000. We just kissed 40,000 yesterday. What's going on with crypto right now? I know that you get forced into kind of making some big kind of predictions about price. And I know you don't generally like to because you think about it a bit more thematically and holistically about the entire universe rather than just the price of one of the underlying assets here. What's going on in crypto right now? Because it's still, other than the price action in a bunch of the big ones. And then obviously some of the altcoins are getting kind of schmeistered at the moment. You know, the sentiment still remains fairly positive. So we just want to kind of get your take right now. Yeah, no. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, it used to be that the way that Bitcoin went is the way the rest of the crypto universe went. In the last three to six months, we're starting to see dispersion. That's the word of the year. I made a great haiku about it. I believe he even did it on the on the Twitter machine. It was fantastic. But but what's happening in crypto is you're starting to see this differentiation between Bitcoin, which has been a pure macro asset, and that's why we have this chart here, which is Bitcoin versus the 10-year yield, and everything else. So everything else is kind of a growth story. And so they're starting to trade on their own growth of their networks. Bitcoin, however, is caught in this macro world. And so we have this, you know, this is Bitcoin versus the 10-year chart. Everybody has been looking at this and saying, oh, if rates go up, then Bitcoin should go up. And that's true in some environments, but look at what just happened. We had a spike in rates and Bitcoin went down. Why is that? It's because Bitcoin has been used since August of 2020, since the FOMC Jackson Hole meeting back then, as a pro-cyclical inflation hedge. And that pro-cyclical part is the really important part because that means it's an inflation hedge if the economy is doing well. And that's why Bitcoin has had a high correlation to the NASDAQ, has high correlation to the S&P 500. And that's why Bitcoin has not responded to this spike in yields. Because this spike in yield is presaging a slowdown in the economy, which is not good for quote unquote growth assets. Now, my view on Bitcoin is that Eventually, it will catch a bid, and it might have even caught a bid right here. I bought some yesterday morning, and I'm probably going to buy a little bit more today. And why do I say that? Because, again, we go back to this oscillation between inflation fears and recession. And as things start to cool off, the market's going to start pricing in less quantitative tightening, and that could be actually relatively bullish for Bitcoin. So that's Bitcoin in itself. The rest of the place, you're talking about just a, just a growth story. We're seeing so much money flooding into this into this sector between GameFi and DeFi and Web3. 
and metaverse, all these things you hear about, there's real big money in there and they're going to trade on their own growth story. Okay, well, Beeks, you know, you just said you bought some yesterday. We're down, you know, at the lows, 42% from those recent highs, you know, from the high in April of last year to the lows in the summer. I think the peak to trough decline was 55,000 or 55%, excuse me. What, what are some of the things that you look at? Or is there anything that, that our, our viewer, our listener can kind of get a sense for? Is there some sort of percentage decline where it starts to make sense to start legging in if you're kind of new to it? Because here's the, the other thing is that most people that that I come in contact with who are interested in the markets, they are new to crypto. It's still the fight. The fact that it's been around for over 10 years doesn't mean, you know, when you think about the growth of, of crypto wallets, while it's been, you know, really dramatic, but off a really low base as it relates to, let's say, retail stock brokerage accounts or something like that is tiny, right? Right. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's still a brand new asset class for all intents and purposes. We, we spend a lot of time talking about it because the volatility is great. And there's some people that have really just knocked it out of the park and, you know, literally rags to riches stories. People sold their cars and apartments yeah. to buy Bitcoin and it's changed their lives. However, if you look at the percentage, I mean, it's a $2 trillion asset class. That's tiny. That's that's a pimple on, on the investment world. So, you know, if I think about long-term, what's the play here? It's just adoption as an asset class. And we talked about gold. So just the real simple yeah. math on that, you know, Bitcoin's about $800 billion in market cap right now. Gold's 10 trillion. If Bitcoin can even take 20% of that, that market cap, that would put that 2 trillion for Bitcoin, that'd be a double or triple up to close to 70 or 80,000. I don't know what other asset class out there you can get that type of risk return at this point. So I still feel pretty good about that. In the short term, if you are an investor in this, what you want to look at is address growth, wallet growth, what you just talked about, because that's really the network effect. So if you just take that and, you know, I use something called Metcalf's Law to kind of look at it, which is a way to measure net, network growth. But if you take, you know, addresses, wallets, and you put it and you do a Metcalf's Law calculation on it, you get a correlation of somewhere between 80 or 90% with the price of Bitcoin. Here's what else is interesting. You do that same thing with monthly active users or daily active users with Facebook or Twitter, you get the same type of 90% correlation with daily active users and the price of Facebook or Metaverse now. Mm -hmm. So this is purely a network effect story. That's how you trade these things. That's how you value these things. And when I look at it now, you're seeing the market is underpricing network growth. So BK, before we get to your Ethereum chart, I just want to show folks the difference between you and I. So Metcalf's law for me was not punting to Terry Metcalf of the St. Louis Cardinals <laughs> in the 1970s. I know that has a entirely different meaning in 2022. He was a but great I, hockey player. Yeah, he was one of the best. Now, I remember you also tell me years ago, Bitcoin is all nice and interesting, but the one you don't want to sleep on is this Ethereum, ETH. And I'm like, hmm. That's sort of interesting. And you know what? Once again, you proved to be prescient. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, you know, the, the game's not over yet, but it has been a pretty, pretty interesting, pretty interesting rise here in Ethereum. So you think about Ethereum I and mean, Bitcoin has become digital gold. So what is Ethereum? People are thinking, calling it digital oil. And so you need Ethereum to run this new Internet, which we're calling Web3. And so that's really where the demand comes from. Add into that, that, you know, as we go forward, 
the supply of Ethereum is actually has the potential to decline because they're starting to burn Ethereum with different gas fees. So you have, a, you know, again, back to the supply and demand. Where's the demand coming from? Growth in Web3. Where's the supply going? It's flattening out at the very least and maybe even going down. That seems like a great asset to buy, whether it's a crypto or a commodity. And then you've got the chart here of the ETH futures. I mean, that looks like a pretty good place to buy something, doesn't it? Great support there. Uh, barely down below the, the two, it's at the 200-day moving average. Um, you know, uh, and no abatement in adoption or building of Web3. Seems like a pretty good place to get involved. Yeah, no, no doubt about it, BK. Um, and you've kind of referenced the relative outperformance um, over the last year or so in ETH versus Bitcoin. And listen, you own them for different reasons. And I know that you want to be diversified. I know I've heard you say on Fast Money on many occasions um, that you want some sort of low single digit exposure of your investable assets in this space. Because again, there just aren't return dynamics that exist in other macro assets right now. Hey, just real quickly, lastly, I get asked this question all the time. And again, I am not a practitioner in the space like you are, a lot of people are kind of worried about creating a wallet and all the stuff that goes into kind of buying crypto assets. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that, you know, the CME, they listed futures about five years ago on Bitcoin. They have micro futures or minis now on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Talk to us a little bit about retail and institutional adoption of futures contracts, which will give you that economic exposure. And the way I think about it is, is that you have the transparency, you have the liquidity, and you have the ability to really risk manage these positions without being in a market that maybe you're not so certain about of some of the rails or some of the on-ramps as it relates to the decentralized world of owning these crypto assets. Yeah, listen, I mean, Bitcoin and Ethereum, Bitcoin futures in particular are near and dear to my heart because I was fortunate enough to work with the CME when they were developing the futures product and kind of help them and guide them a bit on what would work. But to your point, listen, buying crypto, it's getting easy, easier, but it's still not easy. And it's still not in your traditional brokerage account, and it's hard to do. So if you want to have exposure to it, I don't think there's anything wrong with using a futures product or an options type of product in this. In fact, it's probably a really great way to do it. And you don't have to worry about all the intricacies of creating a wallet and storing it and worrying about cold storage. It's getting easier, but to own spot is still a bit of a bit of a problem. And you can put these futures in your IRA. So if you want to do it tax efficiently, I think there's great ways to do that as well. So yeah, I think there are, they should be a part of your investment plan when it comes to crypto. BK, you know, I totally dig you. And I love that NFT behind you. I mean, that's what it's all about, folks. I mean, just putting <laughs> NFTs on the wall and, and talking yeah. to BK on a Tuesday morning. Thanks, Brian. Well, I might be in the metaverse. How do we know? Maybe this is the Gaiaverse. You don't know. That's the thing. Before we 5,000, Dan, any parting words? Yeah, man. Well, you know, we talked about, we started the show talking about that reversal in the market yesterday. We saw that really sharp, you know, kind of one, one and a half percent bounce off the lows here. It looks like it's followed through. And to your point, Guy, I mean, you thought the Fed was going to be, or at least Chair Powell was going to be, you know, reiterate that kind of hawkish stance. Well, he did. And the market's rallying a little bit here. So again, it seems like market participants are getting a bit more comfortable. Keep an eye on the CME Fed watch to get a sense for how much 
what's that fluctuation between that March expectation for a raise? Right now, it sits about 72% of a 25 basis point hike here. So that's something I keep my eye on right now. Look, Brian Kelly is one of the busier people out there. I mean, everybody wants to hear from him. We're thrilled that he able to put some time and, and join us today. So thanks, BK. And thanks for tuning in today's Market Call Macro. Be sure to check us out every Tuesday live at 11 a.m. Today's Market Call Macro is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. And Dan, work with me here. Open Exchange, Dan. What are they, Dan? What does Open Exchange do? They manage virtual meetings that matter, guy. Down. Yeah, for the top companies around the world. Dan and I will be back on Thursday for Market Call Street Research. See you then.